All right, with that, if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Hebrews chapter 5 today. Now, I'm already nervous about Hebrews uh, chapter 6. I get two weeks to prepare for it, but I'll tell you where we're headed. We're going to get through chapter 5 today, but when we get into chapter 6 of Hebrews, it's one of the most difficult chapters in all the Bible. It really is. It's, it's just a tough chapter. Now, the nice thing about teaching the Bible systematically and chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is that when we come to these hard passages in the Bible, we don't skip them. And, and we get, like Paul said, Paul said, I've not shunned to declare to you the entire counsel of God's word. And I'll tell you, if I was a topical preacher and a lot of churches, they just kind of each week pick a, a, a place in the Bible where they want to go, you would never pick Hebrews chapter 6. This, this is a tough chapter. I mean, you've been in church 20 years. A pastor would never choose to preach Hebrews chapter 6. But we're going we're gonna to do our best. I'm hoping to get like an 80 on it. If I can get like an 80% on chapter 6, I think I did a good job. Good news is I'll have two weeks to prepare. I'll be in San Diego next weekend. Um, super blessed. I'm going to get to do a wedding for a, a kid that I've known since like the fifth grade. Liv was my neighbor in uh, junior high. And we grew up together. And he ended up in prison. And, and, and I ended up twisted up and we both came to Jesus and now we're walking with the Lord to together and so it's, it's a blessing so Lydia and I are going to go to Josh's wedding and uh, Pastor D will be here next Sunday so last um, chapter in chapter four it's all about the rest of Jesus and the rest in the Lord that God offers you now this rest in chapter four as we studied it it's a salvation message and the the, the point is that we we rest in salvation we rest in the things that god has offered us that you can't earn it and it's not by good works and it's not by piety or purity that it's it's not by devotion or by how much you pray or how much you give that that you just enter into the rest that god has offered you by faith by grace by the grace of god and in chapter four the the highlight was that the concept listen that god wants to bless your life how many of you guys believe that, that God wants to bless you. How many of you guys believe that God delights in blessing you? Because you deserve it. How many of you raise your hand because you believe that because you deserve God's blessing? I'm glad none of you raised your hand because the people around you would have to move away. Um, that's good. That's good. Listen, we don't, we don't believe that, and we should. The, the heart and the point of the message of chapter 4 is that you need to, you should believe that God wants to bless your life, that God will bless your life, because it's a matter of faith and believing, but it's not because we earn it. So we said at the end of chapter 4, I want you to expect God to bless you. And you say, well, I don't deserve it. No, you don't. But God's going to bless you anyways, because he's good, because he loves you, because he's a good, good father who desires to bless your life. But unfortunately, because we're very aware of our shortcomings, we're very aware of, of the type of people we are. You guys may see me as um, a pastor, a, a leader, a, a spiritual person, um, but I know who I am to the core and the heart. And I know what's in my heart. And because I know what's in my heart and because I know my, my own personal struggles and sins and weaknesses and shortcomings, I, I doubt that God would want to bless that. And I struggle with that because I try to put God in this economy that God blesses me when I deserve it. But that's not what Hebrews chapter 4 says. It says that God blesses me in spite of me. That God blesses me not because I'm good, but God blesses me because He is good. That God blesses me because that's what He wants to do. Guess what God gets to do? Whatever He wants. He's God. You don't like it? build a bridge, get over it. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. And he's chosen in his nature to be a good God that loves you and wants to bless your life. So um, I want you to look as we set up um, for chapter five, I want you to look at chapter three in verse 19. Now, there's a story of that Paul is going to bring out. And the story is the, the famous Exodus story of Moses. Now, whether you're a new to church or you're a Bible person or not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that somewhere along the lines, maybe you've seen the, the Disney movie or you, you have somewhat of a, a grasp or an understanding of the, the Moses and the Exodus story, the ten plagues of Egypt. And Moses going to Pharaoh and saying the famous line, what did Moses tell Pharaoh? Let my people go. And ten times he told Pharaoh, let my people go. 
And Pharaoh changed and hardened his heart, and God brought a plague. And finally, the last of the ten plagues was too much, and it finally broke the backs of all of Egypt, not, not just the Pharaoh. And the tenth plague was called the death of the firstborn. Or today we call it Passover, and, and it's something that's Old Testament that Jesus instituted that we would celebrate um, in the New Testament. It's called communion or Eucharist or other names that mean the same thing. And, and so today you see communion set up in our church once a month, the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate communion. And, and where we got it was in the 10th plague of Egypt. The Lord told his people to, to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of the house in the shape of a cross and down the sides. And the angel of death, the angel of the Lord was going to go through Egypt in the 10th plague and he was going to kill everything firstborn. And God was serious. And God said he was going to kill every firstborn dog, cat, cow, goldfish. Everything was going to die. And the angel of the Lord, when he came to a house that had the blood of the sacrificed lamb over the, over the doorpost, that the angel of the Lord would do what? Pass over the house where we get the term Passover, a Jewish festival or holiday. When Jesus was ready to die on a cross, he taught you and I that that, that was a picture of him. And we celebrated, rightfully so, the Passover, um, remembering Moses and remembering Egypt. Up until this time, something was going to change. The day before Jesus was going to die on the cross, he gathered his disciples and he said, Now we do this in remembrance of... And Peter would have said, Oh, Lord, in remembrance of Moses, of course. We know we've done this our whole lives. We've done this for thousands of years in Israel, Jesus. You don't need to tell us. We know it's in remembrance of Moses. But on that night, something radical changed. And Jesus said for the first time, in remembrance of me. And so now we understand that the Passover that we celebrate, the communion that we celebrate, that that lamb that was sacrificed was a picture of the lamb of God, Jesus, who was going to be sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, the blood of lambs was only good to cover your sins. And that's why Jesus taught of a place called Abraham's bosom. It was a temporary place where um, men and women who died in the Old Testament went until Jesus died on the cross because the blood of lambs wasn't sufficient to put people in the presence of Almighty God in heaven where we go today. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says before he ascended, he first descended and set captivity free. That he went to the side of Abraham's bosom that was paradise and he proclaimed the fullness of the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ now not only covered sins but completely washed sins away as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says God throws your sins into the sea of forgetfulness as a choice. I heard somebody say one time, don't, you know, when you, when you uh, don't remind God about your sin because he forgot well, I don't know if it works like that, but he did. The Bible says he throws them as far, into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west. And, and, and now today the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the... We have no middle ground anymore. There's no purgatory. There's no waiting. There's no soul sleep. The Bible is clear in multiple um, places in the New Testament that the believer today on this side of the cross, when we die, that we go to be in the presence of the Lord. That when you die, you meet Jesus and, and you, you are in and stay and remain, if you're born again, in the presence of the Lord. So that, that was a, a, a long um, intro, but I guess it helps set up communion. But the point was to say that the, the children of Israel... After they, they left Egypt, they, they wandered around the wilderness. And, and you see something that we, we sometimes, you know, get the idea that in the Bible, it feels like sometimes that we have a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. Anybody feel that way? Ever heard that? And, 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 but it's not true. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, but, but yet, there, there does seem to be um, a, a more exacting judgment in the Old Testament, a more direct, that God dealt um, more directly and immediately in judgment with his people, where in the New Testament that God seems to um, um, withhold judgment so that some would get saved or lives would change. 
But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God gets to the point with the children of Israel, and they're murmuring and complaining, and, and, the, and Moses is leading the people through the wilderness. No other people in human history witnessed more miracles and, and, and seen the hand of God more thoroughly than these people. And they still struggled. And it came to the point where God pronounced judgment on two million, possibly two million Hebrews in the wilderness. And he said, okay, I've reached the, the point. And now none of you over the age of 21 will enter the promised land. And it was the longest funeral march in human history. And for 40 years, the children of Israel wandered around the wilderness because they couldn't cross over the Jordan River into modern day Israel because of one reason. There was something going on that God said, because of this one reason, this generation, I've had enough, you will not enter. So when all you die, I'm going to take anyone who's 21 years and younger and anybody who's born during this time, and I'm going to bring them in. And then Moses was, was able to bring the people up to the edge of the promised land, but Moses was not allowed to bring them into the promised land for multiple reasons. The biggest one being that Moses represents the law. And the law cannot bring us into the promised land. So God raises up a young man named Jesus, or Joshua in the Hebrew, same New Testament name that Jesus has, same name, Jesus, a guy named Joshua, and Joshua brings the people into the promised land. Now again, all that, sorry, to say this, to ask you one question. What was the reason that God gave for not allowing those people to go into the promised land and waiting for them to die. What was the one reason that God said that they weren't allowed to go in? I already gave you the verse and the chapter. That's how we do things around here. So the verse and the chapter, what was the reason? It was because of unbelief. It says it right here as clear as day. It says, so, they, so we see they could not enter because of unbelief. Now you would think, right, that it was because of a lack of piety, because of a lack of purity, because of a, a lack of devotion, because they didn't go to church enough, because they didn't give enough, because they didn't wear the right things, because they, didn't, they had sin in their lives, because of this and this and all of these reasons that we put on ourselves that God never gave us in legalism and religion, but that has nothing to do with what God was concerned about. And they were guilty of those things. But God is not concerned with them or with you on those principles. You know what the principle that God is concerned with? Genesis to Revelation, as God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This issue continues to come up, and it's in the forefront of everything that God says and teaches through the Word of God. The issue for God is faith. The issue for God is unbelief. And the reason, the sole reason, that they, did not allow, they were not allowed to enter the promised land was because they had unbelief in their heart. Do you know what keeps you and me today from God's blessing? Is it the sin in your life? Is it the lack of piety or purity or devotion? Is it because you don't read your Bible enough or because you don't go to church enough or because you don't tithe enough? Are those the reasons? You would think, but they're not. The reason that you and I don't receive God's blessing today is the same. It's unbelief. So believe that God wants to bless you. And, and it's our unbelief that, that keeps us from, from what God has. And oftentimes your, your idea becomes your reality. Your vision becomes your reality. Your lack of faith or your, your Eeyore mentality can become your reality. You know, I'm not, I'm not preaching a uh, name it and claim it, a blab it and grab it type of faith, but I am preaching that, that we believe in the promises of God's word and they come true in our lives. And, and we have a lack of belief or you don't trust God. You know, um, Chuck Smith tells a story. And, and Chuck Smith, every one of his grandchildren, when they turned 16, he bought them a car. That was his thing. He bought a car. Everybody want a grandpa like that? 16, he bought all his grandkids a car. And, 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 when, and when it came to the younger grandkids and all the older grandkids had gotten cars on their 16th birthday from grandpa, if one of his grandsons come to him and say to him, Oh, grandpa... I, I know you said you were going to buy me a car, and, and I know you bought my brother's cars, but I just, I just don't, I'm just having a hard time believe that you'll do it. Are you really going to do it? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't trust you. 
What, what, he, Chuck said, what in me would, would make my grandson not believe or trust that I'm going to do what I said I was going to do and what I've already demonstrated that, that I will do and, and have done? And when we don't believe God in, in his word and the promises and, and we don't trust the Lord and step out in faith in the things that God promises to do in your life, it's, it's the same. You're saying to God, I, uh, well, I, there's something about God that, that you can't trust, that, that you don't believe God will do what he says he's going to do. And it affects your reality. It affects your future. It affects God's plan for your life. It offends God. Because God has done nothing through human history to, to tell you anything other than that he can be trusted, that he, can be, that he is faithful and will be faithful in your life. You know what's true about 80% of emergencies? They're not. You know what's true about 80% of the things that we worry and, and, and fret about? They're not. They don't come true. They don't come to pass. But you know what does come to pass? Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So all that to say, you guys, expect God's blessing and understand that the, the issue is faith. It's belief. And, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a faith preacher. But, but there, 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 there is just biblical um, evidence that what God's interested in our lives is believing. You know, the whole Bible, it's, it's crazy because... Um, Story after story after story, and none of this is in my notes, but I'm just thinking of examples over and over again of of believing God. And and let me tell you something. This is kind of hard to unpack quickly, but I want to try. Adam and Eve to the last person in the book of Revelation. Now, again, we have a concept that people in the New Testament are saved by grace and faith. People in the Old Testament were saved under the law of Moses, but that's not. People in the Old Testament, they lived under the law of Moses. But, but Abraham lived 400 years before God ever gave the law. Everybody in human history is saved the same way. What is that? Faith. Believing. Abraham, the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What did Abraham believe God for and in? He believed God that God was going to bring a future redeemer and savior And he didn't know Jesus and see Jesus, but he believed in Jesus. He believed in a Messiah. He believed, and it was his faith in what God was going to do that that saves Abraham. Moses was the lawgiver. Do you know what saved Moses? His faith in believing what God was going to do in bringing a Redeemer and a Savior. Do you know what saves you and me? Faith in believing that God has already brought a Savior and a Redeemer. We just look back. They look forward. We're all looking at the cross. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to the cross. Everything in the New Testament points back to the cross. But it's in the cross and in believing and having faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. Amen? We haven't even got to verse 1 yet. And we got communion today. You guys need to bring that preacher back from last week. All right, so hey, let's look at, let's look at chapter 5. Um, want you guys to believe, believe, believe. Chapter 5 says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both, sac- both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, one of the things, again, you guys, that's, I, I think, um, important as we, we, we systematically teach through the Word of God is we catch things in context. Now, there's something that you and I are going to miss in this context, but Paul here is speaking to, the writer of the Hebrews here, he's speaking to who? To Jews. He's speaking to Hebrews, Jews. He's speaking to Christians, Hebrew Christians. These, these are Jewish people who grew up um, Jewish under the law of Moses that, that now have received Jesus as their, as their Savior and, and, and Paul is making arguments through the entire book. We've highlighted them all. Remember that Jesus is superior to Moses, that Jesus is superior to the law and the prophets. And now Jesus is superior to the human high priest that was in existence. And for a Jew, the high priest was needed. The, the high priest would enter on Yom Kippur once a year into the Holy of Holies, the temple that Solomon built. Before that, the tabernacle that Moses erected. And he would enter into a place called the Holy of Holies where only the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur would enter. And the Ark of the Covenant was sitting there with the cherubim over it. 
and he would, he would offer sacrifices and take the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and, and the, the, upon the mercy seat was laid the sins of the nation of Israel. And he would, he would cover it in the blood of the lambs. And again, that blood of the lamb would only cover that sin temporarily. And it was foreshadowing. It was a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ one day that would wash away the sins of, of the world. And, and so the high priest was needed. Now, now if I said to you, um, if I say to you here today two things, Jesus is high priest. Nobody has a problem with that in here. Cool. I got a high priest, Jesus. Like anybody got a problem? Is it, what, does anything come to your mind if I tell you Jesus is your high priest? No worries. But to the Jew that Paul is preaching to in the context of this chapter, when Paul says to them, Jesus is your high priest, immediately red flags go up all over the place. What is the problem? That one. But the high priest problem is Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah can't be high priest. You can't be a priest from the tribe of Judah. And so the Jews go, hold on, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean Jesus is high priest? He's from the tribe of Judah. That don't make no sense. So Paul is going to address this. And then the second issue is he's going to say Jesus is king. For you and I, king of kings, lord of lords, we get tattoos about it, no big deal, we love it. No problem. It doesn't bring up any red flags. But to the Jew, if you say Jesus is king, now hold on, there's a problem. To them, you can't be both king and priest. God didn't allow it. Big mistakes. Uzziah, King Uzziah. Uzziah was a great king in the Old Testament. Began to reign at 16 years old. One of the best verses, my favorite verses, one of the great powerhouse verses in the Bible is in, in Isaiah in chapter 6 and verse 1. And Uzziah, uh, Isaiah is fired up with the Lord. The God, Holy Spirit is all over him. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He had this experience where he met the Lord personally, and it charged him, and it affected his life and his writing and everything that the prophet Isaiah did. And he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, that same Uzziah was a famous king in Israel. Began to reign at 16 years old, and he did wonderful things. He brought back um, the word of God that that had been buried. And, And Uzziah... At like 50 years old, for one, some reason or another, he had some brain fart, and he got proud. And at 50 years old, he goes into the temple, and he wants to offer sacrifices. You and I, no big deal. Eighty priests come to physically stop him. Say, what are you doing? You know, as king, you're not allowed in here. And you're not allowed to act as, as high priest and king. God forbids it. And 80 priests confront him. And he's the king. And, you know, it's going to be off with your head. He says, get out of the way. I'm doing what I'm doing. And he tries to continue. And leprosy breaks out on his forehead. God immediately judges him. He ends up dying years later from that same leprosy. God never healed him of it. And then we see King Saul, the first king of Israel, make the same mistake. God forbids it. He's a king. He has... He conquers the Amalekites. They come back. He calls for Samuel, the priest, to come and offer sacrifices to the Lord in celebration. And they wait seven days, and Samuel doesn't show up. And Saul begins to offer the sacrifices himself. And Samuel shows up, and he says, what are you doing? You know you're not allowed. This is blasphemy. And Samuel rips his robe. And he says, as, as your robe has torn, God has also torn the kingdom of Israel from you. And, and God doesn't recognize Saul as the king of Israel. God says, the first king of Israel, talking about David. You're like, I'm sure I read Samuel that Saul was before David. Well, he was, but he's not recognized by God as the first king. God, God wrote him off the pages of history. Because he acted as both priest and king. But again, for you and I, we, we, we miss this. We don't quite understand this topic. But Paul's addressing this to these Hebrews. And he's going to make a case why and how. Listen, everybody say why. How Jesus is able to be both priest and king. Now, let me tell you this. I already told you what God does, right? Remember when I told you what God does? What did I say God does? Whatever he wants. So you say, he's God. Why don't he just do what he wants? He could be priest and king. He's God. 
Just do whatever he wants. But Jesus, in order to fulfill the prophecies, in order to be worthy and a sacrifice, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, there's a scene. And the writer, um, the apostle John, who's an old man at this time, he's weeping in this scene in Revelation in heaven. Why is he crying? Because there's a scroll in heaven and it's sealed and there's nobody that's worthy to break these seals and open that scroll. And John begins to weep because they need to open it to redeem planet Earth. And they say, behold, there's one that's worthy, the Lamb of God, who was slain, and he's worthy. Talking about Jesus. Now, in order for Jesus to be worthy in heaven, in order for Jesus to be accepted by God as a worthy sacrifice for your sins and my sins, Jesus had to be without sin. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. Paul's going to tell us, and he told us in the last chapter, that in his humanity, Jesus faced the same temptations that you and I face, and yet was without sin. And in order to fulfill this role in Jesus' ministry, he had to abide by the law of Moses. So he was bound by these rules. He was bound by the same laws and rules. There's only one person in all of human history that's ever pleased God based on rules and regulations. Who's that? It's Jesus. He was the only one that ever fulfilled the law of Moses without breaking any of them. Nobody else has ever done it. But it was the point of the law. The the point of the law wasn't to keep it. The point of the law was to show you that you couldn't keep it and you needed Jesus. Was to point you to Jesus. So, so, but he has to follow him. So Jesus is bound by these rules. Verse two says he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people. So also for himself to offer sacrifices for sin. So the point here in the first couple of verses is that Jesus is superior to the high priest. Now, speaking to a Hebrew Christian who, who would really understand and appreciate the role of the high priest in his life, knowing that the high priest would, would offer sacrifices to God once a year, he's saying that Jesus is superior to the high priest. Then he points out the fact that Jesus was without sin and the high priest was a man of sin. That before the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would offer sacrifices and atonement for his own sin, lest he went into the Holy of Holies with sins and fell over dead. And then in verse 4, he says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who was called of God, just as Aaron was. Somebody say, called of God. Hey, what has God called you to do? What is God's calling on your life? Where does that calling come from? Come from a letter? From the organization? The calling of God, it's just that. It's a call. And God puts it upon your heart. And God gives you and calls you and leads you. And, and, and you know, I encourage us. And now, now, I want to be careful because I think this can be a heavy burden. And I don't want to put a heavy burden on you that God has not put on you. But I used to say, if you don't know what the call of God is on your life, then, man, jump on it with two feet. You've got to figure that out. Like, you've got to know what God's called you to do. And, and I think that kind of, that's not fair. What I say now is the call of God is, is irrevocable. You can't miss it. But, but the will of God is, is, is missable. You can end up in the perfect or the permissible will of God. And so rather than worrying and stressing about a big picture that's hard to kind of grasp, if you seek God's face today and you seek God's will for the next 15 minutes of your life and you're obedient to what it is God wants you to do for the next 15 minutes, and when that's over, you do it again for the rest of your life, you'll never miss the call or the will of God. And, and thereby you stay in the will of God just step by step day by day, in little bites. But, but having a, a call of God on your life is, is everyone should and does have a, a certain call. Now, whether it's serving Miss Sue, who um, moved here from California with Lydia and I, she served with me in children's ministry for 15 years back home. She's been here serving kids faithfully. She was serving kids long before I met her in children's ministry. And God has called her to serve faithfully, and, and she's led hundreds of kids to Jesus and loved on thousands more over the years and just pouring into little people. But a lot of you may not even know who Miss Sue is, unless you go drop your kids off or you may have never even seen her. 
She came at 9 o'clock, and before you guys got here, she was plugged in next door, as she is every week, serving kids. And, 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 and Billy Graham, how many of you guys know the name Billy Graham? Everybody knows the name Billy Graham because Billy Graham was called of God to preach to more people in live audiences than anybody in, in history. I mean, Billy Graham preached to millions upon millions of millions of people in live audiences. But, but I want to tell you, Billy Graham's reward and Miss Sue's reward is, is not based on where and what God called them. The Bible says in order to be the great equalizer that God bases rewards in heaven on how faithful you are to the call. So, so Sue's reward is as great and as, as awesome as Billy Graham's. And you don't ever have to feel like, oh, well, I'm just a Sunday school teacher or I'm just a prayer warrior. Listen, the church moves forward on its knees. We don't do what we do if you people aren't praying, if we're not praying as a church. So if your ministry and your call of God is to pray and pray for us and pray for the church and pray for our county and pray for our community, and you do that faithfully, your ministry is, and nobody sees you, your ministry is as valuable as anybody else's here. And, and so we, we, we figure out, but we, we spend time with God. Again, I remember I was telling you a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a friend and he said to me, you know, uh, Chris, are you saying that I lack faith? Because this is not happening and I don't believe. And I said, no, you don't lack faith. It's not a, an issue of, because that teaching is out there. Oh, if you don't receive this or you're not healed or this doesn't happen, it's because you lack faith. Some people will say that. That's garbage. It has nothing to do with faith. Who had more faith than the Apostle Paul? And he prayed three times that God would heal his infirmity. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Meaning, no, you're going to stay with this infirmity. It wasn't because he lacked faith. But, but if we lack an answer, if we lack a direction, it's not a, it's not a lack of faith. It's a lack of relationship. It's a lack of intimacy with your God. It's a lack of, of devotion and, and, and intimacy where you hear and know the will and the voice of God in your life. And so focus on that. You know where you need to focus and where you need to be in your life that will solve all your problems? You need to figure out what Mary in the Bible figured out. And you know where we see, where do we see Mary every time we see Mary in the Bible? Sitting at Jesus' feet. You want your problems to solve? You want your answers? You want direction? You want to know what the will and the call of God is on your life? Starts at the feet of Jesus. Develop in your life a, a, a devotional life, a time of, of getting intimate and personal with Jesus. The Bible talks about two keys to your intimacy with Jesus. Number one is early. I don't know, it's just a Bible thing. The Bible says, seek me early and I'll be found. And the second one is, seek me with your whole heart and I'll be found. Those two things. Those are two keys. Seek him early and seek him with your whole heart and God will be found in your life. And whether it's early or not, you have the whole heart that covers the rest. So, oh, I missed early. Oh, well, you still got the whole heart option. So seek him with your whole heart and he'll be found in your life. So, Verse 4 again, real quick, and then we've got we to finish the first four, and we'll try to get through this. But verse 4, we're talking about the calling of God. Now, what, what Paul is telling the Hebrew Christians, why Jesus is superior to the high priest of their day that was well-adorned and highly respected, um, is, and he says, listen, nobody calls themselves. We see that happen in ministry sometimes. You know, people want to teach, or they want to be in front of people, and you know, and they teach and, and they just, they're not called or gifted in that area and it never goes well. Or you want to be a missionary and, you know, you want to go on foreign missions because that's what you think you're called to. And yet you won't go tell your neighbor about Jesus, but somehow if God sends you to Africa, you'll tell everybody about Jesus or Australia or something, you know. So um, you, 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 you don't get to choose. God chooses. You can't self-appoint, right? We had this happen in... in um, in Numbers chapter 16, I was going to read it, but I'm just going to tell you a story quickly. In Numbers 16, we have a story called about the men called the sons of Korah. Anybody familiar with the sons of Korah? Okay. The sons of Korah, they, they went, came, approached Moses because Moses was the leader of the million, two million Jews that were wandering around the wilderness. And they said to Moses, who made you God and king? How can you get all the access to God? We want to be, we want to serve in the capacity that you do. We want some of your power. Now, this was such a shift in the attitude of the Hebrews because in Exodus 20, when God showed up in, on Mount Sinai and gave Moses the law, he invited the nation of Israel to gather around Mount Sinai. He said, don't let them come up because they'll die. But keep them on the bottom, circle around, and, and, and they'll get to witness me coming and bringing the law 
on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. Moses is the only one that goes up. Moses goes up, thunder, lightning, all this craziness. And the, the people are scared. And Moses comes down and they're like, Ooh, but that scared us. We're okay. You just go talk to God and tell us what he said. We'll take it. But we're going to stand back. We don't, we don't want to get anywhere near that mountain or any, any of that. And they went from that attitude to these sons of Korah. Years later, they approached Moses, and somewhere they're like, well, maybe that was a bad decision. We do want some of the power. And, and who made you? We, we want to decide. And so Moses, or, or God and Moses, say, okay, we'll let God choose between us, much like Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. Let's have a competition and see who God chooses. And, and so they pray that God would choose the rightful leaders in Israel, and the earth opens up and swallows Korah and 300 men, 300 people that were along with his rebellion. And not only that, then, then God sends a plague through, the, through Israel and everybody who had the heart of rebellion and was gossip and on that team, God killed them all. Sometimes I wish God would exact some Old Testament justice. I'm just kidding. I didn't just say that out loud, did I? Um, so he dealt with the, the, the issues in, in a real practical way, and, and I mean, just, you know, Old Testament. But, but they didn't get to choose. Korah didn't get to choose. God chooses. And God said, I, chose, I choose Moses. But, but again, and he's saying Jesus didn't choose. God chose. So in verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he whom said to him, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Did you guys just read that with me? You're clear on that? Who's Melchizedek? Where does he come from? Where does he go? Where do we find out about, about him? Turn with me, if you will, real quick. Let's go to Genesis 14. Now, um, all of Hebrews chapter 7 is about Melchizedek. Paul has a lot to say about Melchizedek. So I, I, don't, I don't want to talk too much about Melchizedek today because we're going to cover it in a couple of weeks thoroughly. We're going to spend a whole Sunday on Melchizedek. And I, and I want you to know, I really feel, especially where we live, and um, that it's important for us as Christians who know the Word of God to, to have a, a, a real intellectual clear understanding on what the Bible teaches about Melchizedek. So the, we get to Genesis 14, and we see this guy in, on, on, in Genesis chapter 14 named Melchizedek who shows up. No other writer in the Bible talks about him until we get to um, Psalms chapter 110, one little verse, a little line about this guy named Melchizedek. Then nobody else talks about him again until we find him in Hebrews. He's in Genesis, little verse in, in Psalms 110, and then lots to say about him in Hebrews. And Paul is going to expound and explain and tell us exactly who and what Melchizedek is and what this priesthood is that Jesus holds. Now, Jesus is what? He's both priest and? so, But he's a priest, but he's not a priest under the priesthood of the Levitical priest. Now, Aaron is a guy, he was the, the, the brother of Moses, who was from the tribe of Levi. He was the first high priest. So we call it the Aaronic priesthood. They're from the tribe of Levi, but Aaron being the leader, it's the Aaronic same thing, right? But Jesus, who's from the tribe of Levi, he didn't come from this earthly line. He, didn't, he wasn't a priest according to the line of Levi or Aaron. He's a high priest. Paul tells us very simply here, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we just got to answer the question, who is Melchizedek? So 14, first time we find him. Um, Abraham's uh, brother Lot, or nephew Lot, he, he is um, caught in the crossfire of a war that's taking place around Sodom and Gomorrah. We're close to God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. We haven't got there yet in Genesis 14. There's five kings on one side, ten kings on the other side, and they're warring with each other. And, and Lot is caught in the crosshairs and captured. And the men come and they tell Abraham, your, your nephew Lot has been captured in this battle and he's being held hostage. And so Abraham gathers his 318 trained men who live in his house and they go and they fight and they have war against these five kings to get back 
um, Lot and his, and, his, and his men. And Abraham and his men, they win the war. They get them back. They come back to where they are. And this guy Melchizedek shows up right after this battle. And that's where we pick it up in verse 18. And it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. What does that remind you of? You're not sure? What's in here? Bread and wine. Or bread and grape juice. Okay, we're Calvary Chapel. Um, Bread and grape juice. Unleavened bread, by the way. Unleavened bread because Jesus was without sin. And leaven represents sin. But Melchizedek shows up with bread and wine. How did he know? Why, what, what, what's significant? Right? You always see this. You see this multiple times in the Old Testament too. This bread and wine appears. And we know what it is now. And he was priest of God Most High. So immediately in verse 18, right, we have this guy Melchizedek who has this very um, unique character. Now understand, Abraham, this is 400 years before the law of Moses was given. Moses won't even be born yet. And the law won't be given for another 400 years. So um, Abraham is there, and this guy who's the king of Salem, what does Salem remind you of? Jerusalem. He's the king of peace. So he's a king, and he's also a high priest. So we have this little dilemma guy on this this Melchizedek from back there because he's king and priest, and he shows up to Abraham, and he blesses Abraham. Now the greater always blesses the lesser, right? Never the other way around. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now, that's a phenomenon in itself because nobody in this point in human history is greater than Abraham. And definitely nobody on planet Earth in this day is greater than Abraham. Abraham is our father of faith. And, and yet Melchizedek shows up and he's going to bless Abraham. And he says, blessed be Abram, the God of, most, of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands So he blesses him for the war he just won and says that it was God who gave him the victory. And he gave him a a tithe of all. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe. What does the word tithe mean? It's just a math term. It means tenth, a tenth, ten percent. People say, oh, tithe and and tithing, that's an Old Testament principle. That's in the law. Well, the law contained the the rules and, and the idea of tithing, but tithing appears in the Bible 400 years before we ever get the law. In the, in the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel offered offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. It's Genesis to Revelation that God's people bring things and offer them to the Lord. And so Abraham offers a tithe. Now this guy blesses Abraham. He brings the bread and wine and they, they receive communion together. Then, then he blesses Abraham and then Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. And that's it. He disappears. Never see him again. In the Old Testament, New Testament, he's gone. Until we get to the point where Paul begins to explain to us who he is. Now, just kind of spoiler alert. This, this here in the Bible is what we call a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ himself. This is Jesus who appears to Abraham. And Abraham, um, he blesses Abraham and Abraham pays a tithe to him. So Melchizedek... Is, is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And, and, this, and in the New Testament, we learn that Melchizedek is, is a priestly line of God himself. You know, when God wants to swear to prove a point, the Bible says, what could he swear by? He can't swear by the earth. It's his footstool. He can't swear by heaven. It's his throne. There's nothing greater than himself. He has to swear by himself. And God is, there's, there's no priesthood that would be above Jesus or, or would be worthy of Jesus except for his own priesthood. And so Jesus is a priest under the order of Melchizedek. Now, how many priests belong and how many people belong to this godly line of priesthood that, that is Melchizedek? How many people in human history, how many people exist today that are a part of the Melchizedek priesthood? There's only one, and it ain't you. <laughs> it's Jesus. Simple. It's, it's, it's easy to understand. There's one priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and, and his name is Jesus, and to claim, you know, the Melchizedek priesthood is blasphemy. 
You're, you're saying you're putting yourself on a, on a par and a level with Jesus himself when he's the only one worthy and the only one capable of this godly line and this godly priesthood. And, and, and it's just, again, it's a, it's a, it's a way that God, God solves really the only, his own problems that he creates. And then we're going to get into Melchizedek, you guys, in chapter 7. I want you guys to read ahead through chapter 7, more stuff on Melchizedek there. And it says in verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from the dead was heard because of his godly fear. Though he, he was a son, yet he learned obedience by things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became author of eternal salvation to all who obey God. That's talking about Jesus. And Paul is talking about in his humanity, in his kenosis, in his emptying himself of divine attributes, that through suffering, that he became and he earned the right. Listen, look what it says. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How do you get to heaven? Through Jesus and Jesus alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. It's blasphemy to think that you need to add to what Jesus did. It says that that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't sufficient to cover your sins and that some of your actions need to add to what Jesus did. To slap in God's face. What Jesus did was sufficient. And all you need to do is believe. Is believe. You know, Jesus illustrated this believe story and this idea of believing in, in, in John chapter 3. Remember the story of John chapter 3? Jesus is giving the famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoso believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3. Hey, I want you guys to know this. Who was Jesus talking to in John 3.16, the famous verse, we all know John 3.16. But Jesus was actually having a conversation with somebody. Who was it? Who? Nicodemus in the back row. Back you back row folks. Nick, everybody say Nicodemus. Listen, we should know that. We should know that. Like, it's important that we have some context to the things. That, and as people of the word that, that we know these things. Well, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and, and he says, you must be born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is, is, is twisted and he says, well, what, what can I do? Can I crawl back in my mother's womb and be born again? And, 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 and Jesus says, um, even as the, the Son of Man must be lifted up, he says that, that there was a, a pole in the Old Testament that people had to look to to be healed. And even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and he refers Nicodemus back to a story in the Old Testament, where God had sent a plague through the land, and then he erected a pole. Uh, and on the pole was the snake wrapped over the top. You ever see on the side of an ambulance that pole with the snake wrapped around it? It's in all the ambulances and the medical fields. That comes from the Bible. That, that comes from this story in the Old Testament. And the solution that God gave for this illness and this plague that was killing people was that, that they should erect this pole in the middle of the wilderness, and then the people should come out of their tents and go look at the pole, and they would be healed. And Jesus references this story in John chapter 3 to show that, that, that what was magical and what was life-changing and what brought salvation was believing. Because there was no doubt some old crusty guy in his tent, right? Oh, what do you mean go look at some stupid pole? I'm dying. I need medicine. I need healing. No, no, just by faith, man. Just go out and just believe and just look at that pole and it'll work. No, that don't work. Well, it takes faith. It takes believing, but it's all that God requires. It's all that God desires is, is believing in, the, in, in his son whom he sent. And so it's, it's believing. And, and, and Paul, again, he's just hammering this home. And then he says um, in verse the end of 10, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you are dull of hearing. Paul, Paul says you're dull of hearing, not me, okay? Don't hate the, the messenger, just the message. So they, they, they were dull of hearing. They were, they, were, they were just not learning the way they should have. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles 
or the oracles of God. And you have, not, you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Another challenge from the book of Hebrews that you and I need to grow up in our faith. We need to mature in our faith. That you can't be a Christian for 30 years and have not learned anything. There's a challenge. There's an encouragement. There's, there, there's a, a reason that we go through the Word of God the way we do. And we study the Word of God. And we know the Word of God. And I've met Christians, unfortunately, who have been Christian for a long, long time. And, and they don't understand basic principles of the gospel. Or they only understand very basic principles of the gospel. And Paul's frustrated with these guys. He says, you've come to need milk again. By now you should be eating steak. Listen, there's nothing wrong with milk. If you're a new believer, if you're new to Christ, God bless you. The the cutest, best thing in my life right now is a little three-year-old. And she drinks a bottle. And she says crazy stuff. And she likes to try to to chase her brothers around the house and say, nana, nana, goo, goo. Tell her mom says, don't say that. I don't like that. And, and, And it's the cutest thing in the world. But if she's 25, drinking a bottle, running around the house saying, nana, nana, goo, goo, it's not cute anymore. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. And, and Paul is challenging these Hebrews, and he's saying, look, you, you, you've been Christian too long to still only be drinking milk. Now, I want to be very clear. Milk is not bad. Milk is the gospel. We need milk. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ, the elementary principles of baptism and salvation and, and, and these, these things that are milk. But at some point, we, we need to be growing in our faith. Somebody say amen. 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 All right. So let's have the, the worship team come up. We're going to receive communion today.